We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernane. This one is from the Modern Soccer Coach Roadshow event that we did in First Draft Bar up in Chicago last month. We had three guests, Tony Strudwick, Arne Friedrich and Todd Bean. They joined myself and Dan Abrams on the stage. So great night. Huge thanks to everyone who attended and brilliant to meet coaches from far and wide who listened to enjoyed the podcast and then stuck around, listened, chat about football for a few hours. Absolutely brilliant. So much appreciated to everyone who attended. First up for this one is Tony Strudwick. Tony has over 20 years experience in sports performance and sports science. 10 years at Manchester United that we're going to talk a lot about. Uh, was also at Blackburn, worked with England during the World Cup and he's now assistant coach with Ryan Giggs at Wales. This podcast is brought to you by Sports Lab 360, a new and innovative online program focused on youth development and a tactical and soccer IQ perspective. If you haven't come across their program yet, I would highly recommend checking them out. Perfect for coaches who are looking to go the extra mile to enhance the development experience for their players. We've got more on the halfway point about how to receive an exclusive MSC podcast offer. So stick around and that will be coming up. Love to know what you think about this. We talk about Sir Alex Ferguson, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Manchester United culture, at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. Here's Tony, enjoy. First up, culture at Manchester United. It's obviously become a big talking point most recently with Jose and, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer coming back. You worked there alongside the culture man, Sir Alex Ferguson. What did that feel like every single day? Yeah, I think when you talk about culture and particularly at Manchester United, I mean, my first day at a job was, was essentially welcome to Manchester United, get on with your job. And I think the expectations were really high. And I think that was, that was always the mandate because when we talk about culture, what we're really talking about is a, a set of behaviours and what people live by. And I think it's not about a slogan on a wall. It's about every day going into work and having the highest standards. But beyond that, every organisation has a culture, whether it's a good culture, a you know, mediocre culture, a culture of success. So cultures are ever-living, but you have to have people that police that. And I think the great thing about Manchester United, when I went there, when I joined in 2007, incredibly successful team, uh, an incredible you know, in leader in Sir Alex Ferguson, but you, know, you knew what the standards were. And if you never hit the standards, there are always people to remind you that this is what is expected of you as an employee at Manchester United. So, yeah, the culture was very tangible every day. It wasn't just a case of, you know, we didn't talk about it, it was very fluid, but the expectations to do your job um, and, you know, just not carry any spare parts. And I think it was really easy going back because that level of culture was just assimilated over years and years, you know, and passed down from one coach to the next. And I think when we look at the last five years, perhaps, you know, when Sir Alex left, we, we also lost about 
five or six staff and 100 years of corporate identity and knowledge. So there was no one really to, to keep passing the baton down. And the great thing recently, what's happened, I think, bringing back Mick Phelan and, and Oli Gudaskowski, is that they know the culture, they understand the culture. And I think for, certainly for, for three or four years, there was a disconnect between you know, what it really meant to be at Manchester United. So it was very livable, to answer your question, very tangible, and it was very pleased by everybody at the, within the organisation. Alex Ferguson is a, is a massive personality himself, big character. How does a coach develop players who assume leadership, who maybe are in fear of outgrowing the manager? You know, how do they get that? What kind of things does he do on a day-to-day basis that grows that leadership? I think leadership is about followership as well, and I think we, we, we've seen that in recent times. I think the, the great thing about Sir Alex was that it, it was about empowering his staff and empowering his players. So it wasn't just about one figure, although, you know, we knew that he was always there to remind us of the standards of Manchester United, but everybody was a part and everybody felt empowered and his whole kind of, his coaching style was very much relationship-based. So, you know, beyond anything else, everybody felt a part of the organisation. And I think that's when, you know, that's true leadership for me is that you empower people to, 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 to step up to the plate and, and deliver. Okay, I'm going to try and ask you, ask a question because my voice is, uh, I'm dying right now, but <laughs> I'll try. I'm mentally tough here. That's interesting what you've just said because... I was talking today in my presentation about autonomy supportive coaching and controlled coaching and the difference between the two. And I think my perception, um, actually having spent a bit of time working with Steve McLaren and just talking to people who, have, who were in that culture for a number of years, is there is a misconception that Sir Alex Ferguson was this sort of controlled, co controlling coach. He was actually more autonomy supportive. And he was quite clever with that in as much as he knew which players to give a bit of rope to. And by doing so, he really established a strong leadership base that really drove that culture of success. Absolutely. And I think when you look at the, the real successful organisations in terms of sport, I think very much high challenge. So every day the players drove incredibly high standards. Yeah you know, from, from the first team right the way down to the academy and the academy coaches. So the challenge was high, but the support was also high as well. Yep. So I think, you know, you know, when you've got high challenge and high support, that's when, you know, you, you start to overachieve and you start to build this culture of success. It's that, think, it's that balance between stretch absolutely. and support. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you can work in some organisations where there's, you know, there's, there's high challenge but low support. And essentially, that's a bullying culture. That was, it wasn't necessarily that by any stretch of the imagination. And I think the other thing around that, Dan, is that there was always clarity from the manager down. So effective leadership was about clarity. And that, that was a, like my first day on a job. Like I said, it was like the players are downstairs. Go and warm them up. Didn't tell me what to do. It was just he'd trust me to just go and do it. And I think, you know, beyond that, th there's a connection now. He's entrusted in me. I don't want to let him down. So that carried me for six or seven years. The talk about the pressure of playing at a club like Manchester United and how difficult it is for players to go out and play at Old Trafford, pressure to win trophies, pressure of worldwide media scrutiny. How much pressure is there on a staff member to
to support that there in a culture like that? Yeah, I mean, I think any member of staff, from, from first team staff right down to the academy, I think everybody knows what it means to work at Manchester United. And I think that came from Sir Alex 26 years ago and that was inherited by Sir Matt Busby and, you know, even beyond that. And, um, you know, Sir Alex w was always one that went, you know, when he first came down from Aberdeen in 1986, he was training the under 15, so he set the standards. So the pressure was always on everybody to perform. And it was a kind of, like, he was, he's the leader, but he, he's leading by example. I think there were, there were players that came and, came and went that didn't quite understand or couldn't deliver in front of the big crowd and, and couldn't really come to terms with the expectation of what it was to be at Manchester United. But I think from a staff perspective, I think Sir Alex really recruited good people and I think he had an eye for talent and I think that was a good thing. He would bring people in that he knew would deliver for him and they would put pressure on themselves. And of course, when you work in an, you know, in an intimate small group, there are no spare parts, you don't carry anybody. And I think the pressure was not only internally, but you know, as a group and you know, the, the pressure to deliver, didn't really feel a pressure to deliver to, to, to the players, although if ever you went out and did a poor session, they'd let you know for sure. So they kept you on your toes. And I think that, that's also part of everything is that everybody's under scrutiny. In these high performing environments, everybody's under the spotlight. Everybody has to deliver, but it's not necessarily a, you don't feel that pressure. You just understand that this is this is how it is, and I think it just becomes a way of life. So, I think that some of the things you said there are really interesting. It strikes me that you can have a great deal of physical, technical, tactical ability, but if you weren't resilient, you'd drown in that environment. So, how is that slightly challenging you here? How is that congruent with a supportive? culture or is it supportive to a degree but if you really don't have the capacity to play in front of that crowd then you are going to sink and we're not going to support you in that respect I mean I think it, I think the other thing unique yeah we'll come on to that in a minute Dan but I think the unique thing about Manchester United and Sir Alex Ferguson is that I think in his tenure he had five or six assistant coaches so I think everybody that, that stepped into that understood the requirements and what it meant to be at Manchester United. And we, you know, that was common dialogue. Everybody would speak about we're at Manchester United, what it represents, because that's part of culture, that's part of living a behaviour, that's part of a common, common framework and language. I think beyond that, there were certainly staff members that, that, that came to the club and, you know, didn't last out, but I think there, there were a lot more members of staff that really stood, stood their time and, you know, 10, 15, 20 years working under Sir Alex. It was supportive. The door was always open. So you didn't feel that you're on your own. If there was a problem, you shared it. And I think that's, that's part of a good organisation as well, is that if there's a performance problem, we share it. We don't take it on. And I think, you know, beyond that, you have to, as a practitioner, you do have to develop your own resilient skills. You have to deal with criticism because it comes our way and ever, ever more present in today's Twitter world and social media world is that, you know, the modern day coach is going to be inundated with, you know, constant updated criticism. So you have to develop them resilient skills and, and part of being an operating within a team and within a, within a culture of success is that they will support you. And I think it was a very supportive environment. A lot of talk today in coach education about sports science, 
development, getting the balance right, what, what, what age should we train in low to measure things. You mentioned resilience. I know you've, you've done a lot of talking about robustness. Yeah. How did Cristiano Ronaldo play 60 games a season consistently for Manchester United and score 40 odd goals? I think, well, there's a couple of things to pick up, pick up on there. One is that, you know, I, I've been quite vocal that I think sometimes sports science loses its way. I think when sports science isn't new anymore, Gary, it's 40 years old. So what actual sports science means is that utilizing scientific principles to get a competitive advantage. So that's not new. I think what we've had in the last kind of five or 10 years is this influx of young, really bright practitioners that really don't have the ability to connect with the athletes and to connect with the coaches. So great on spreadsheets, great understanding data, but they don't necessarily get the kind of high touch that you is required at the top, top level. And that's what it is because we work with athletes. We work with footballers, soccer players. And I think that's, that's very, very important. The sports science bit comes really as a, as a kind of support framework. It's not the, 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 the towel that, that drives the dog. Coming back to the kind of Cristiano Ronaldo thing, it was that here's a guy that, that really was, you know, a gen the, the top of his gene pool, the, the, you know, raised the bar genetically. And you get that in, in any sport. Every now and again, a new athlete comes along and takes it onto another level. So when Cristiano Ronaldo was at Manchester United, he, he averaged a game every three and a half days. Play, recover, play, recover, play, recover. You know, he then moved to Real Madrid. It did exactly the same. So that that kind of mentality, and he was, you know, one of the most professional young men that you could ever, you know, you, you could ever meet in your life. He was driven by success. He was driven by wanting to be the best. And it was very easy for him, really, that all our job was to create that level of support around him as an individual athlete, and he, he embraced that. So. When we talk about robustness, I think robustness and resilience primarily comes from a kind of mental framework is how you prepare and what the requirements are to be a top athlete. But certainly you have to have that kind of genetic potential to get you there as well. Uh, I've got two questions. Um, so you said that Cristiano Ronaldo was driven uh, to be successful. In your experience, do you think he was more driven to win trophies and medals or through mastery, through being the best at his craft? Which, which driver was more powerful for him, the extrinsic one or the intrinsic? You may not be able to answer that, but what would be your guesstimate or a mixture of both? Probably both. Yeah. I think, you know, <clears throat> I think the modern day athlete is driven by external stuff a lot more than they used to be. To their detriment. To the detriment, to the detriment of culture of, of places, and it, it now becomes about identity and you know that old kind of selfish psychology. I think with, with, with Cristiano, you, you know, he wanted to be the best, and his level of training every day is, was, was such a high standard, Dan. But but beyond that, the level of the, the level of training every day was was really at the, at the top of everybody's game. You really have got you know 16 to 20 players every single day wanting to be the best player on the field, and he was every day, without a shadow of a doubt. He 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 was driven beyond anybody else. So we always you know when when practice finished and we talk about mastery. When practice finished, he would be the one that was out longer than anybody else. 
was, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the, the story goes that that kind of knuckleball that he hits was, was driven by his, uh, his table tennis. Now, he could play at an elite level table tennis, left hand, right hand. So he was, you know, it, it had that kind of personality to want to drive. And I think that drive comes from an internal perspective. But when it comes to mastery, yeah, you, you could not get them players off the field. Wayne Rooney was another one, practicing free kicks. And the biggest job for a fitness coach then is to try and drag them off yeah, yeah. without telling you, them telling you where to go. My second question was, I think you mentioned one of the most important words in, in football, and that's connection. And you use that word with reference to sports scientists use, losing their way in terms of, I think, sports scientists can be socialised into data and numbers and that becomes the primary thing. Just as I think coaches can be socialised into winning and performance. It's all about winning, it's all about performance. For sports scientists, it's all about numbers, it's all about data. But there's that word connection. You've worked alongside a number of the world's top coaches. How do the best coaches create connection in your experience? Great connection with players. I, th I think when you talk about connecting, I think it's connecting beyond the field. And, and that's what relationship-based coaching is about. So you could sit down and have a conversation with Sir Alex Ferguson about grandchildren, parents. So connecting is not just about talking football all the time. It's about understanding, you know, knowing your athlete, knowing your athlete's issues, knowing your athlete's children, names, how you're doing, having a chat. So that, that piece is very, really important. And I think that, you know, that, that may well have been lost in, 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 the, in, in the kind of last coach. And I think you know, the, the ability to connect, it's not manufactured. It, it, you know, it's something that's natural. It's coming in every day. And I think this is the issue with kind of the, the iPad generation of sports scientists is that, you know, does an athlete really want to have an iPad pushed in his face as soon as he walks in the training ground? No, he doesn't. And I think there's so, so much value in asking a, asking a human being, how are you doing today? And it's not just a case of, yeah, I'm doing fine. No, 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 how are you doing today? And you can see their eyes, and that's what we call high, high touch. I love technology, and I love where technology is going. And I think that the really successful models would be high touch, high technology. I really believe that. But you can't have low touch, high technology. It just does not work. Because then you're, 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 you're not creating a connection with the athlete. And that really is what coaching is about. It's one-on-one -on -one human being interaction. It's interesting you say that because a couple of weeks ago I interviewed um, a woman called Professor Sophia Jowett, who um, on my podcast, which is the second best podcast <laughs> in the world, Gary's is the third. Um, and she's uh, at, based at Loughborough University and she's spent 20 years researching coach-athlete relationships and she says the number one, it's slightly obvious to say but I just love the way that the research links up with the practice. She said the number one thing, she's interviewed thousands of coaches and athletes from Olympics, Olympians down. And closeness is the number one thing. You know, having the capacity to find common ground. It could be liking each other, sometimes it's not that, but just having the capacity to find common ground. You know, whether it's a small thing like pe uh, pleasantries, as Tony's alluding to, or something a little bit deeper. And she said that is the number one thing that comes out of thousands of uh, interviews over the last 20 years. Yeah, and I think that, that then builds trust. 
and trust is really important because trust is something that you know you put in a bank and it really is it's like when you go to the doctor you want attention you want personal attention you want to build trust and likability you know likability sometimes out trumps ability it really does if you like somebody you know you're more often to forgive their, their issues every now and again but that likability factor is very, very important. And I think it's become, it will become even more important in, in the modern generation. Just going to take a quick break here to remind anyone listening to set aside a few minutes of your day to check out Sports Lab 360, a new online program focused on player development from game understanding and soccer IQ perspective. The program empowers coaches to control the tactical development of your players outside of the time spent on the field. You can use the platform to assign soccer, football homework to your players and then select modules that coincide with the tactical focus of training. Players work through the modules that, that you assign as a coach. They see game film examples, they engage with animated interactive lessons, they take a quiz at the end to check for understanding. It helps to identify potential areas of development on a team and player basis and then optimizes the limited time that you have on the players. So we've teamed up with Sports Lab 360 for the Roadshow. We're excited to offer all listeners here a 15% off club or team subscription with the code Roadshow Promo 1. Again, highly recommend you checking out their stuff. It's new, easy to use, and very practical tool with tangible results. Back to Tony. Thank you. When you look at the Class of 92 documentary and they're laughing about Ferguson's different stories on how he dropped them for the last games... He's told him that the pitch was bad and he's told him he needs him for six months down the line. And we're all asking ourselves what went wrong as you know, people outside looking in. Well, Louis van Gaal, a reputation as one of the greatest coaches of all time. Jose Mourinho will be the rep- reputation for the greatest coaches of all time. Alex Ferguson does not have a reputation for being one of the training coaches of all time, yet has one of the greatest leadership capacities of all time. So does that then point to... I know it's a very broad brush to, to go with, but that the personal skill is means a lot more. I mean, I think it's complex. I think when you, when you look at... I think we, we have to accept that Sir Alex Ferguson was a genius, first and foremost. And um, I think that genius has been magnified in, in, in perhaps the last three managers because all, all three of them have been incredibly successful in their career. And we learned... You know, at Manchester United, we, we did learn, you know, a lot of things from the three managers that came in. They're all very good on the grass, all, all have an ability, this is post-Ferguson, and an ability to deliver. And they have delivered. Jose in particular, he's won everything. I think when we talk about, you know, what has gone wrong, I think it, 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 it's beyond the grass. I don't think it's necessarily, I think it's everything. It's, it's a... You know, Manchester United really is a way of life and we talk about culture and organisation and and I think when you lose, like Manchester United did with Sir Alex Ferguson and when you lose six members of staff that, 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 that we did back in 2013, it's going to take time for anybody else to come in and, and assimilate and, and, and put, their, put their mark on, on the team and, and the club. And I think beyond that, you know, in fairness to the three managers that came in, the landscape of... of English Premier League has changed dramatically from recruitment to the rise of Manchester City to the birth of, you know, the rebirth of Liverpool and 
you know, the, the game has, in the last four or five years, has, has moved on in significant capacity. So it has changed. Things have changed. Life has changed. You know, the, the world of the agents changed. So it's not just about one thing. So, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, and when, whenever you have a fantastic leader like, like Sir Alex, and whether it be a Jack Welsh, uh, any organization, you have a, a leader that's been so incredibly successful. I think any organization is going to have a period of, you know, trying to, to, to regroup and go again. And I think that's probably what we've had. What I'd like to see now, really, is, is just a bit of stability because we had stability for 26 years. And the only thing that, that, that's really been constant over the last six years has been change. And I don't think that's good for an organization from a staffing perspective, new staff coming in, staff going, new processes, new technologies. And I really don't think that, you know, from, if we, if we want to rebuild again, we, we, we've got to start and say, look, the next guy that comes in, this, is, this has got to be a, you know, a five, ten year project. Because otherwise we just become like a, another organisation like Chelsea where it really is a change model. And, and coming back to the, the brilliance of Sir Alex is that he wasn't a scientist, but he understood how to keep the plate spinning. So he would always manage a squad of 26, 30 players. There was always a, a talent pipeline coming through the system from Les Kershaw and Brian McClare and, and Paul McGuinness. And we knew that the, the, the talent would come for our system. And we knew that at the end of that, 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 you know, the fantastic academy that we have, that, that Sir Alex would give them a chance. But a new model comes in and all of a sudden it's a quick win. You know, it's a completely different model rather than this kind of sustainability model. And I think that's what, what the club really, and you know, that's what the club really needs to get back to is say, right, we are a long-term project and we, we're going to reinvest and, and get back to where we need to be. Brilliant. We'll go uh, 10 minutes questions. We'll do uh, three questions. Hi, Dave. I think that's... Uh, thanks for that grenade, Dave. <laughs> I think... Um, I mean, look, I, I'm delighted that, that Solskjaer's back at Manchester United. He was a, an incredible professional. Great guy. Um, fantastic ability to, to connect with people. But I think he's more than that. I think he, he's, you know, he understands the game and I think he understands people. I think he was he was brought in as, as a short-term candidate, really, to, to, to steady the ship. And I think he's done that. And I think the answer to your question, Dave, is if he continues to get results, they can't get rid of him. I mean, you know, how can you bring a manager in for six months? If he gets fourth, fourth spot, he gets Europe, and um, he goes on a, on a winning streak that he has done, he continues it, I think it'd be very, very difficult not to give him full-time. Okay, so, so I think the question there is how much of the, the business side is affecting the... My opinion is that you know, you know, when you look at the, the Manchester United model, it is one of the most successful business models in sport. It really is. And, and you know, the, 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 the Glazers and, and the job that they've done with Ed Woodward has been absolutely spot on. I don't think it necessarily... I think there's always two components to an organisation. There's the business and there's the, the playing side. In my time at Man United, I never really saw an interference. So, I mean, it's very easy to say that it's all about business now, but I still think that Manchester United are about, it should be, it's a football club, it should always be about football. I think what the business does really is, it should allow us to recruit the best players in the world. So that they should be, there should be almost like a, a kind of synergy between the two. 
but when things don't go well, it's easy to say, oh, it's all about the business. It, it shouldn't be, and it, you know, the focus should always be on the football. It really should. Yeah. So. You have some famous stories, but what was your, your interview process or your first experience as well? Like? That was an interesting one. So my interview process was that I was at Blackburn Rose at the time, and um, I got a, got a call, as you do. And um, I had to borrow a suit, so literally I had an interview and I had to borrow it from, I think, one of the reserve team players at Blackburn. And uh, it was mid-pre-season because my predecessor, he left on day one of pre-season, he went to Real Madrid, which didn't go down too well, obviously. And uh, so I'm driving from Blackburn there, it's a big storm. I'm trying to get changed in the car. I've only got one sock, so I walk in the office. Uh, so Alex, and that would have been, for me, that would have been a pinnacle, just meeting the main man himself. So. It wasn't an interview, it was a chat. It really was, how you doing? And uh, I kept trying to cover up my shoe because I only had one bloody sock on. And um, it really was, how you doing? You know, tell me about your family. There, was, there wasn't a lot of content. And I think that was the greatness about Sir Alex is that he would always try to recruit the person first and then the skill bit would come thereafter. So it was always about people. And he did exactly the same with players. You know, he would do his due diligence in a different way to the, the recruitment processes that's very number-driven in, in the today's sport. But he wanted to understand a person. And it, it wasn't, for me, I came and my wife said, how'd you do? I went, I'm not sure. It was just a chat. And, um, you know, talking to him after it, that's all it was. It was just a chat, him getting a feel. And I think that intuitive mastermind was probably the, the, the same apart from everybody else. Were you ever on the end of the infamous hairdryer uh, treatment? Yeah, I was actually. I think. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's another story. In our, in our 2013 season, we we got to, I think it was about March, and we had a bit of a wobble up, and I think Chelsea beat us in the cup, and um, we dropped a few points. Robin van Persie had come in and he'd stopped scoring, and it was just before the Stoke game, and, and Stoke's always a tough place to go. And uh, he came in one day and he said, we're not fit enough. And I was a little bit, I disagree with you. And that was it, it was like, <laughs> here we go. And um, yeah, there was, there was quite a lot of expletives. And, and lit I didn't know what to say, honestly, for the first time in my life, I was absolutely speechless. And it, it, it was like, he went, and he went again, and then he went again. And then he called me back at one o'clock in the afternoon and he went again. So yeah, I did get it. And uh, I remember driving, I'm saying that, thinking to myself, right, I'm leaving, I'm going, I'm going home. But uh, you know, a week later, it was all forgotten. And I think that was a great thing. It was that you know, he went, and we didn't see it a lot. And I think that, that was the other misconception. You didn't see it a lot. I think you know, whenever you get into a situation where, you, where you're gonna get the, the, the so-called hair dry, whatever that means is that there's always gonna be a winner and a loser. So he would pick his moments, but when the moments came, <laughs> And uh, I just wish I would have said, I agree with you, boss. We're not fit enough. <laughs> we'll do one more. Anyone else? I mean, uh, so I think the question there is, is more about how, you know, working in a high school, how would you create culture? I think. The first thing is, is you've got to be consistent. There's got to be a consistent behavior strategy. That's driven from the coach. And I always say that is that how would you expect your players to, to live the culture if the coaches don't? So being on time for practice, 
demanding high levels of, of, of professionalism. I think the other thing around that is, it, is that clarity and messaging always be clear. And that was a great thing about Manchester United. Everybody understood what their requirements were on a daily basis. So there were no grey areas. You know, there was no, well, what's he doing today? What's the expectation? No, very, very clear. And then beyond that, is that there's a consistent messaging around culture. So if you're a player and you come to a coach and you ask me a question, it's exactly the same answer that, that, that another coach would give you. So consistency of messaging. And, um, and I think beyond that, and then the last thing about, I think, successful environments, in my opinion, is that you've got to have fun as well. Be professional, but you've got to laugh. And if you go back to Sir Alex times and you see the, the, the camera pictures, everybody had fun. Everybody came to work. They knew when, when to switch on, when to switch off. So there was a, you know, a positive classroom policy. Be on time, do your best, but have fun doing it. And I think you know, just sticking with them basic principles, that allows you to build a platform. And, and when people come into that environment, they understand what it is and what it's about. Just to give you my two cents worth, I would um, be tempted to empower your young players to drive the culture. So Tony said there about behavioral boundaries. I would do a session with them where you empower them to come up with their behavioral boundaries because then it's more believable for them. You're giving them the opportunity to experience leadership. You're giving them the opportunity to have a conversation amongst themselves. You're giving them that freedom. So you've got that beautiful balance between structure, so some controlled coaching, but autonomy supportive coaching because you're giving them the autonomy to come up with the behavioral boundaries. And if you're high school, they'll know, they'll come up with some good stuff, but then you ask them permission to be able to hold them responsible, hold them accountable for that. That's that, that to me is really, really important. They set your culture, and then you guide that culture. You, uh, you facilitate that culture. Yeah, one more. You always scored goals in the last yeah, 10 minutes of You have the record in the Premier League. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the question there from, from Dave is that Man United, and they run some stats on that as well, Dave. I think they, they overachieved against the some statistical model by about 10 or 15 percent so uh, whether you call it Fergie time whatever you call it and I think it it was complex I'd love to say that we were the fittest team Dave but it wasn't the case I think beyond anything it was about risk management and I think Sir Alex was was the master of risk and he would manage it's a bit like a basketball game he would manage the game and he would wear the opponents down and he would make the right substitutions for the last 10 minutes of a game and he would always get players on the field that could score goals so he would always take Michael Carrick could be our best player bring him off and we're all looking he put Darren Fletcher on because he knew that Darren Fletcher could score a goal so he would get goals on the field so I think his ability to manage that last 10 minutes of a game and not panic that was very very important I think beyond that there was almost like a a self-fulfilling prophecy Teams would rock up to Old Trafford. It would be nil-nil with, with, with 10 minutes to go. And they'd settle for that, Dave. And I think they'd, they'd then retreat. And then Man United can then find spaces and wear appear, uh, opponents down. So I think that tactical piece that the players worked out themselves. And, and Paul Scholes and Ryan Giggs always used to talk about 
you know, lending the ball, getting it back, making teams move, making a move, you know, for 80 minutes, for 85 minutes. They'd find the opportunity in the last minute to be patient. But the other team, there would always be a moment when they switch off, Dave. And we had, they had the ability for, the, for, for them winning moments. So risk management, putting yourself in a, in a, a situation where you shoot to win. Because he weren't happy with a draw. He wants to win. You know, drawing was was like losing. So I think where other teams come in and they're just happy with a draw and that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy as well as the tactical piece. And I think when you get that kind of mix and teams rocking up, and, and you've been there at Old Trafford. I went there with Blackburn. You're happy, bloody hell, we got 1-1 today. And then the next minute, boom. And it happened so often. And I think it, it was just a culmination of, of all them things that we've spoken about. Tony Outstanding, thank you so much. Loved it, thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much to Tony for his time and his insight there and for Dan and for everyone who joined us for that. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. A couple of takeaways from me, just the things that I write down. Leadership is about fellowship as well. His coaching style was very much relationship-based. Likeability sometimes trumps ability for a coach. He was a genius spinning a number of plates, coaches who have the ability to connect with athletes and players. Does a player want an iPad pushed in their face first thing in the morning? No, they don't. And I think there's so much value in asking someone how they're doing. As we start to get more knowledge about coaching, and especially in social media, the information is just flooding every day. Match analysis, statistical analysis, little clips, tactical pieces that we can bring into our programs, session ideas, session plans, coaching articles. All this information appeals to us as coaches because it's what we want. We want all that information. We want new ideas. We want new studies. We want new evidence. Don't ever get lost in the fact that it's about people. And when you hear about one of the greatest of all time, who on his job interview didn't really ask about the profession, asked more about family, asked more about just a general chat, he said. When you hear about that and you hear about so much success, it's not always curriculum based that brings it. It's not always presented in a, in a spreadsheet. Sometimes it's just the art of talking to people, of knowing people, of connecting with people. I've made that mistake so many times when I reflect and look back on things that didn't work on my coaching. It was probably my personality or the way I communicated rather than the information that was communicated. And listening to Tony and, and hearing about the culture at Manchester United, it's just so inspiring to hear that those things are important. Being a good person is important. Learning about other people is important. Taking the time with other people is important. Meeting people where they're at is important. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that, whether you agree, whether you disagree at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. A big thank you to Sports Lab 360 for partnering up with them. Please go and check them out. Check out their website. Check out their work. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernin on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.